in Genesis 15, and that's where we're going to be today. And as you turn there, as we think about, in making business and financial contracts, okay, in making business or financial contracts, what is collateral? When you're putting collateral down, it's an amount of money, right, or, or an object that you, you have to put down that you have to then give up, forfeit, if you don't pay the money back, right? So, what items do pawn shops sell? If you go to the pawn shop to go buy something, what are you buying? Someone's forfeited collateral, <laughs> right? <laughs> the stuff people lost because they never paid the pawn shop back. Yikes. Now, if someone were to take out a home equity loan, what is the collateral? The house. The house is the collateral. Uh, why, think about this, why in this beautiful world where everyone loves one another and never does anything wrong. Why do we need collateral? Why is that a thing? Yeah, because people can't always be trusted, right? Uh, we have different means in our culture and other cultures of making promises. We have the handshake. You hear people say sometimes, I remember when and the handshake was good enough. The handshake, a pledge, uh, putting your left hand on the Bible and your right hand in the air to make an oath. Uh, we sign our checks. We e-sign our e-checks. We wear rings. We vow vows. And of course, the pinky promise. We have all kinds of means to commit to things, don't we? Now, because God is God, he should never have to make a promise with any of these kinds of signs. He's God, right? But today, we're going to see God's willingness to give assurance to Abram. God's going to condescend to give assurance to Abram's heart through quite an unusual, quite a drastic method of making a promise. So chapter 15 in Genesis, starting in verse 1. And it starts off with, after these things. So what are these things? Remember, that in the last chapter, in the last two weeks here on Sunday morning, we had the conquest of those four kings that ran along the Euphrates River, led by King Kedorlaomer. It's a nice evil-sounding name for a king. And after uh, they came across the region of the north, they swept down, they swept around to surround the area, they captured Lot and his family. And then Abram pursued them with his 318 men and defeated those four kings. And then after... We had Abram's time of worship with Melchizedek, the priest, and the king of Salem, and Abram's rejection of any kind of participation with the king of Sodom and sharing in the spoil with him. So would you agree, there's some serious stuff that's just happened. Abram's had a week, hasn't he? So with all of that that has just transpired, the word of the Lord comes to Abram. It says in verse 1, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And he said, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now, why would Abram need to fear not? What might he have been fearing? Well, maybe retaliation. Uh, has history shown us any precedent after losing a battle? Now, kings never come back for more, do they? Well, of course they do. That often happened. There's precedent for that. Uh, what was the reputation of the king of Sodom? 
we'd agree it wasn't very good. Uh, was he just going to let Abram reject him like that in front of Melchizedek and in front of Lot, one of his own citizens, without desiring some sort of revenge? Once he got his feet back under him and got back home and got his armies built back up? Uh, not to mention the great friends that Abram has made in Egypt, uh, namely that of Pharaoh and the debacle that occurred there. You could argue that Abram ha- now has some enemies from the world's perspective from Egypt all the way to the Euphrates. In the middle of it all is Abram. He has one buddy, Melchizedek, but he has God. And God promises to be his shield. Uh, we might be used to reading narratives like this in the Old Testament and just knowing that the battles were over and the next chapter comes along and what's next. But Abram didn't know that. That's not where Abram was. He was in the thick of it, in the middle of this. And some people might have thought him delusional if he hadn't been a little afraid. And though it might have seemed reasonable for Abram to have some fear, God assures him that his fear was unnecessary because he himself, God himself, was going to be Abram's shield. Abram had an ally in the God of the universe. And the Hebrew word for shield in this verse is similar to the word translated as deliverer in chapter 14, verse 20, which Melchizedek had declared that God had delivered Abram's enemies into his hands. So God is on the offensive for Abram, and God is his protection on both sides of that. Now, let's see how Abram responds to God. Verse 2. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? What is he concerned about here? The delivering of enemies? The the shield from future threats? And the answer is no. But the promise of the reward. God said he was going to give him a great reward. And why is he concerned? He answers this. He says, For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Abram's not telling God what to do, but he he is trying to reconcile the issue at hand and offering this as a suggestion. Uh, But first in saying, O Lord God, Abram is acknowledging God's sovereignty over him. This is not Abram's rebellion. He's he's calling God this name, O Lord God, as a way of saying, You are my master. You are sovereign. This is where we are right now. Does that make sense? And he's asking God for help because there's no one to inherit the inheritance. Now, the typical practice of the day for a childless couple was to take one of those who work for you, one of your servants, and then legally redeem them from their service and then to adopt them. And then they would become your heir. So commercial break. Already, yes, commercial break. In the New Testament, we see this practice used as an illustration for our salvation and our standing as the children of God. Galatians 4, 4 through 7 says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, the relation of your dad. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. In that illustration, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross serves as the fee for our redemption from our slavery to sin. 
We have been bought with a price. Our freedom has been purchased. And then God adopts us. He adopts us. We become the children of God, and with our standing as the son of God, sons of God and the daughters of God, we become joint heirs with Christ. Joint heirs with Christ. That's not fair. It's like it's too good to be true, isn't it? Uh, my dad always told me if it's too good to be true, if it sounds too good to be true, it is. is it, well, wait, wait, wait. But this is true, isn't it? This is God's doing. And he already has a son. God didn't adopt us because he didn't have a son. He has a son. That ought to blow our minds. And just like Abraham, our reward is great. And our greatest reward is Christ himself. The Apostle Paul said that he was racing toward the prize of his calling, which was Jesus Christ himself. So now back to Abram. Abram needed to know exactly who he was going to be giving this great reward that God had promised too. And so following the cultural norm, it led him to assume that it was going to be his servant, Eliezer, who was from Damascus. But God says otherwise. Verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And God said this, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Notice that God does not refer to Eliezer by name. Why? And the answer is, in that time and culture, the naming of the proposed individual was a sign of legitimacy. So if the judge named the person in the proceedings, then all who were there knew what was coming next. It meant he's adopted. And God doesn't do that. He does not name him. So in not naming him, God's telling Abram, don't even think about it. Instead, God promises, your very own son shall be your heir. And verse 5, And he, God, brought him, Abram, outside and said, Look towards heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. And of course, he couldn't do that. He couldn't have numbered them, just as he couldn't have numbered the specks of dust or the grains of sand on the ground in chapter 13. And then God said to him, So shall your offspring be. So God's not just promising inheritance being passed to one child for Abram and for Sarai, but to a vast multitude of descendants. And then verse 6. He believed, and the word there in the Hebrew is what we get amen from. So be it. It's true. Abram amened the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. God counted it to Abram as righteousness. This verse is incredibly significant. It's quoted in Romans 4. Romans 4, I'm going to read from verses 1 through 5. It says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Well, it says this. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. It's quoted in James chapter 2. I'm going to read this from verses 21 through 23. And and remember this, when, when the Apostle Paul writes about justification... He's writing about the courtroom justification, meaning you stand before the judge and you are declared not guilty. 
you are declared innocent. That kind of justification. When James writes about justification, he's writing about it as a how-can-you-justify-that-expenditure kind of justification. Does that make sense? Prove to me you did the right thing here. That's that kind of justification. And it says this in James chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? You see where the confusion would be there? When he offered up his son Isaac on the altar, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. So what this means is that Abraham obeyed God as a result of his faith in given righteousness. Because Abraham had faith, because righteousness was counted to him in his faith, his faith worked out. It resulted in things. Does that make sense? Not in order to accomplish righteousness, but the exercise thereof. And then this is also quoted in Galatians 3. And this is from verses 1 to 9. And, and Paul wrote this again. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? The answer is that that is impossible. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or, or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand, before the law, to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. So what we see in all of the scripture is that God gave a promise before the law. Uh, some people call this the covenant of promise or the covenant of grace. And Abraham believed, and that was faith. And God counted righteousness to Abram, to Abraham. Did Abraham do enough righteousness and God supplemented it? No, because if we fall short, if we're guilty in one, we are guilty of the whole, right? The righteousness of someone else had to be attributed to Abraham's account, put into his account. And how did that come to him? Through faith. And do you know how people were saved during the Old Testament law? God had given the promise of a coming Messiah. The people believed that promise, and God counted righteousness to them. Do you know how people were saved before Abraham? God gave a promise. Genesis 3.15, for example. The seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Remember, Job even said, I know that my Redeemer lives. And there's other examples. By faith, Abel. By faith, Enoch. By faith, Noah. People believed in the promise. Faith. And God counted righteousness to them. And how are people saved today? How are people saved today? God has given a promise. 
Jesus Christ lived a perfect and sinless life and went in our place under the judgment of God to the cross. Romans 10, 9 and 10 and 13. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is God's promise. And then people hear that message, and they believe. That's faith. We are saved by grace through faith. God then counts righteousness to us. Christ's righteousness, he lived that perfect and sinless life. So he died in our place, and with that he lived in our place. And his righteousness is put to our account. This is how people are saved. This is how people were saved. For all time. For all people. By God's grace alone. Through faith alone. By the shed blood of Jesus Christ whether you look forward to it or we look back to it, by Christ alone. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And did you notice what it said in Galatians? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. When God told Abraham to look up at the stars, to count the dust beneath his feet, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you are one of those who are the children of God, you are... One of those descendants. The promise was not just concerning the Jewish people, but all those who would become heirs by what? By faith. By faith. So there's there's promises from God here on two tracks. The literal physical seed of Abraham and the children of the promise. Both of these tracks of promise are going on here in these chapters in Genesis. Now back to Genesis 15, verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Uh, This is the same way God would declare himself to Israel later on, saying, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And here, God moves from the people, the descendants, to the land. But God still has to give it to somebody, right? And so Abram asked, in verse 8, Abram said, O Lord God, again, giving respect, how am I to know that I shall possess it? The emphasis on I, it's not in a selfish way, but he's going back to the problem of his and Sarai's childlessness. How could he be sure that he had a natural heir to the land, to give the land? Uh, God has promised a natural heir, and now Abram is asking God, in a sense, like it says in Mark, Lord, I believe... Help my unbelief. And God does just that. Verse 9. And this is where things, if they weren't already way out there, here comes more, all right? He said to him, God said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old. A female goat, three years old. A ram, three years old. A turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, meaning opposite one another. But he did not cut the birds in half, in case you're wondering. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now just to help illustrate this, sparing no expense, 
I have acquired some animals. Okay? Here they are. We're not going to have any blood and gore today, okay? But just to help us understand what's going on here with this this deal here, I have to get a little less hot under the speakers. This was literally called cutting a covenant. Cutting a covenant. Okay? So, here is my three-year-old heifer. This is my cow. And just like this, Abraham did this, right? No, it wasn't like that. What would it, just, just for fun, what would it take to cut a cow in half? What a, what a fun afternoon activity right there. So I'm gonna put the half of the cow here, and the half of the cow here. Okay, there's our first. And then a goat. Now this goat probably would not have been acceptable for sacrifice. It's a little, a little imperfect in its appearance there. And he looks like he knows what's coming. His eyes are huge. Sorry, buddy. There you go. Okay, we're going to set this right here and right there. And then a ram. This one's probably a little too old, but I couldn't find a better picture. So we'll pretend this ram is three years old. He grew his horns really fast to no avail because he is now deceased. And he's going to go right here and right here. Okay, and now we've got a turtle dove right here. Got a turtle dove. We're not going to tear it all the way in half, right? Because that would be unbiblical. We're just going to go about that far. And it's going to go here. And then here's our pigeon. And same with the pigeon. We'll just, we'll just go ahead and get him so that he's dead. And he is opposite the turtle dove. Okay? What is this scene? Besides ripped paper. Okay, imagine with me. I know it's a stretch. Or a tear. But imagine with me. What does this scene look like in real life? There's blood everywhere. And it probably is going to stink as the afternoon goes on. Remember that the night before Abram was told to look up at the stars, it's going to be nighttime again before this chapter is over. This is taking up to 24 hours in the course of all this time. And so as you would imagine, it says in that passage that Abram had to fight away the birds of prey. You have all these dead carcasses in this open area, and the birds are coming for for supper time. And Abram is trying to fight these things away. Okay? Fight the birds away from the birds. Gross, right? But here's what was happening. This was not a first-time-ever thing. Okay? God didn't invent this this day. This is what people did. Okay? Now, I need help. Ralph, will you come help me out for a second? So here is, here's what this did. And this was called cutting a covenant. So if, if Ralph and I have a business venture, or a, um, if he's going to give me a loan, or uh, something that we need to make a promise to each other, it wasn't enough to just shake on it, unfortunately. You had to cut these animals in half, okay? So I'll make a promise. This sermon will be over before it gets dark tonight. <laughs> and Ralph, when we're done with this illustration, will you promise to go back to your seat? Yes. Okay. Okay, we can, we, can, we can hang with this covenant. Okay. So we've made these promises to one another. And here are all these bloody animals. And as we walk through these animals together, we are saying to one another, may I be like one of these animals if I don't fulfill my promise to you. Does that make sense? That's how they did it. Uh, a little gruesome. But it was the way they did it. Okay, thank you.
Go back to your seat now. You better. Okay. All right. That's how you cut a covenant. You ever heard of somebody cutting a deal? There you go. We learned something pretty cool today. Now, verse 12. Genesis 15, verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. This sounds similar to Abram, doesn't it? When God was making Eve out of his rib. And behold, so, okay, in his sleep, dreadful and great darkness. The word there is terror fell upon Abram, fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners, they'll be alien residents, in a land that is not theirs, and will be, they'll be servants there. Uh, so what's, what's God telling Abram about right here? Egypt. This is Egypt. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, those plagues. And afterward, when they, when they, they shall come out with great possessions. In Exodus 12, as the Israelites leave Egypt, uh, after the final plague, it says, thus they plundered the Egyptians. This came true. Verse 15, as for you, you, Abram, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You're going to die. You shall be buried in a good old age. So these other things about Egypt are not going to happen in Abram's lifetime. And they shall come back here to this land I've promised you in the fourth generation, so about 400 years, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Why 400 years? Because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In these verses, God gives Abram more than he even asked for. If there were to be a concern as to whether God knew what he was doing, that's eliminated. Not only does Abram receive the promise of a child, and descendants, and land. But God also declares that after Abram's life has passed, Israel will be in Egypt as slaves for 400 years. God will bring judgment to Egypt. Israel will be preserved from that judgment in freedom, to freedom. And the inhabitants of the land of Canaan that God is promising for their possession will then, and not until then, will then be ready for judgment from God. So Israel's sweeping into the land of Canaan. There was the flood during Noah's day and a means that God used for judgment in the day of the birth of Israel going into the promised land was, was their coming into the promised land and defeating the peoples there. So church, who's in control of the world? Who alone is sovereign? Who alone is both long-suffering towards sinful man and perfectly executes judgment in righteousness and at the right time? Who alone is worthy of our obedience and praise? Who alone is trustworthy to fulfill all of his promises? The Lord God. Our Lord God, who is making promises to Abram right here in this passage, making a covenant agreement. He's cutting a covenant with Abram. Now remember our animals down here. It's time to cut the covenant. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch. Remember God's manifested present, presence represented by fire here. Think forward to the burning bush example um, with, with Moses. God at times manifests his presence with fire. And that flaming torch passed between those pieces on that day the Lord made, he cut, and the word there is cut, a covenant with Abram, saying, 
to your offspring I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So this would include all or part of present-day Egypt, Lebanon, Syria, of course Israel, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Kuwait. All or part of all of those countries. And then he says, as it was in that day, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and the Jebusites. That's what it was in his time. Okay? So what happened here? What happened here? How were people supposed to cut a deal? How did they symbolize their covenant? Who walked through our little example there? One or two? Two. Both parties were supposed to walk through those pieces together. And when they walked through together, remember, they symbolized the mutual responsibility to the agreement. They were saying, may I be like one of these animals if I don't hold up my end of the deal? Where was Abram while this was happening? God had put him in a deep sleep. But he's able to see this. God walked through these pieces alone. This covenant then is unconditional. It's unconditional. What did Abraham have to do to ensure the promise of God would come true? Nothing. What chance was there that Abram could mess this up? Zero. That's right. Whose life was on the line if the deal fell through? God's. God doesn't die. Do you understand what we mean when we say that God is sovereign? He's not playing chess with Abram. He doesn't play chess with us. He isn't watching to see what we do and then recalculating and recalibrating and outsmarting us along the way. That idea, by the way, is called open theism or open theology. That God is along this timeline with us and goes, whoa, I didn't see that coming. Okay, everything's back to normal now. That's not how God works. Uh, There aren't other possible alternate endings. He's eternal. He knows the end from the beginning. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the all-powerful, all-knowing, righteous and holy God. And he chooses to come down and to take a disgusting tradition like cutting a covenant in order to bless Abram. To teach Abram about himself. To teach him about God. This idea of God coming down to our terms and our understanding is called condescending. Condescension. God stooping down to our level. Now when people are condescending, it's, it's gross, right? It's inappropriate. And it's mean. Because it requires that one person see themselves as superior to another. But God is God. And when he condescends, it's grace. It's grace. So God condescends and makes this unconditional covenant with Abram in a way that he understands. The promise is entirely of God's doing. The promise is entirely of his grace. Now, do you see how this condescension and grace would remind us of Jesus? Does this ring a bell? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
who, though he was in the form of God, did not, account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Now they say God doesn't die. Jesus did. Even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Sounds like something God would do, doesn't it? When we know the scripture. So, who was Abram to rely on for his protection and his reward? God. God alone. Some trust in chariots. Some trust in horses. Some trust in money. Some trust in people. In power. In intellect. In institutions. And on and on and on and on on this earth. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Why did God pass through those pieces alone? Because he alone is trustworthy. Because he alone is trustworthy to fulfill his promises. And we aren't. God is holy. God is eternal. All-powerful. All-knowing. Sovereign. And God is gracious. Amen? Praise God. And what is the basis of our righteousness? Jesus Christ. Jesus. Christ alone. The righteousness of Jesus Christ has been put to our account if we put our faith and trust in him as our Lord and Savior. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. All glory to God and God alone. Let's pray together. God, thank you for condescending to us. If left to ourselves, if we would trust ourselves or the things around us on this earth that is under the curse, we know we would stand condemned, and rightly so. And God, in your grace, you have given us this promise and the promise that those in the Old Testament looked forward to, you brought to pass in giving us Christ. And he came and he lived and, and he was perfectly righteous and is perfectly righteous. And yet he died and he died in our place and he purchased our freedom and he took the wrath that we deserve on himself. And Lord, may we remember that when Christ died, we died. That our life is now in him. God, thank you for walking through those pieces alone. And may we live seeking to honor and glorify you with the life that we now have in Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.